Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Tiffany is away this week, but I'm joined by Kat Sito. She's a San Francisco-based artist, author, and shop owner. She's got a BFA in painting and an MFA in fiction and creative writing. And yet, along the way, she visited Paris and it changed her artistic life quite a bit, which I can equally say happened to me when I went to Rome. Would you say that that's a fair interpretation, Kat, that your life was changed by going to Paris? I would say that's more than fair. For all types of reasons, it absolutely changed everything about the way I looked at life and and the way that my career opened up after that as well. So her newest book is called Impression of Paris, an artist's sketchbook. And I thought maybe as a way of getting into your journey that maybe we could start with the Hemingway quote that you put in the very beginning of the book. And I will attempt to read it. (laughs) And then I want to know what it means to you. Okay. Okay. So this is in the very introduction of the book, Ernest Hemingway. I've seen you, beauty, and you belong to me now. Whoever you are waiting for, and if I never see you again, I thought, you belong to me and all Paris belongs to me, and I belong to this notebook and this pencil. Why did you decide to open the book with that thought? I wanted to open up with that quote because it was such a poignant statement about place and art and and just belonging. And I just felt that when I went to Paris, it was as much a part of me experiencing Paris as much as it gave back to me. I mean, it was really just this sort of process of like yin and yang for me. And I felt that quote was so beautiful because it resonated on so many levels about what Paris means to so many people and also what it inspires out of people as well. Now, when we were emailing back and forth, trying to figure out when we were going to do this interview, you talked about being a little bit of a late bloomer that you traveled late, that maybe your friends used to make fun of you for that. Is that really how you see yourself, a late bloomer? Yes, I absolutely have been a workaholic for most of my life and also always (laughs) guilt-ridden. Mommy guilt, every kind of guilt you can possibly have. And for me, I felt that traveling was always this just this wonderful pleasure that I loved hearing about from other friends But when I traveled, I felt like if I didn't do something with it or bring it back or create something out of it, I think because I'm always trying to create something, that that was probably not a good idea at the point where I was, which was always struggling to make it as an artist. And so I thought if I saw something beautiful and I wasn't able to transform it or create something out of it, then, you know, I shouldn't be doing that. And so for many years, I just did not take time off to do a a lengthy trip. So I avoided it until I was having basically like a creative meltdown or a rut, you could say, where I just wasn't able to see my collection very well. And there was a recession and a lot of people in my industry were suffering. And so in that way, it was almost like a forced break to go out and just do nothing and just have a trip where I could just inhale the beauty of Paris. And yet it ends up being transformative. So yes, interesting. yes. Well, well, let's back way up for just a second, though. What were you doing in these workaholic years? So in those years, I first actually came to San Francisco. Um, I was supposed to write 
the quote unquote great novel because that was what I was doing <laughs> right before that. And I was struck with writer's block. I could not write for the life of me. And I began staying up all night long crafting these wool finger puppets <laughs> out of these animal finger puppets. I created hundreds of them and I would just put them in a drawer and like open them up at night at 3 a.m. while I couldn't sleep and just make more finger puppets just to like while away the time. <laughs> and then finally, that's when I decided, you know, maybe I, I should turn this into something and I looked at them and thought maybe I'll do a children's book or I'll do like some children's products out of it. But eventually what came out of it was a series of characters that I started to illustrate and then put on stationery and paper. So I decided I'm going to do a stationery collection at that point and then take it to New York and then debut it. And so I just went on a lark and decided to launch it. And then my first client was Anthropology, And that really started the brand. But I was such a newbie to the whole paper and stationery industry, even to aspects of wholesaling and all these other parts of business that I had not even begun to think about that I just I felt like I had to work like double the amounts just to learn and, and talk like I knew what I was talking about to my clients. So that really took up a lot of my time. It was just getting up to speed and making sure I was able to run this sort of one wo woman kind of show um, from my uh, extra bedroom. And then I wanted to move it into a new location, an actual studio. And so that took up a lot of years where I wasn't looking at anything but the business and growing it. Hmm. I, ha I have so many questions out of that, but the two I really want to ask is, number one, why finger puppets? <laughs> That's a good question for myself, actually. Um, <laughs> finger puppets, I thought, so this was always the thing I, I wanted to busy my hands. I'm just, I think there's just this natural itch in me. I'm always wanting to sketch or doodle. And that's always been the way I was since I was a kid. I'd always be like sneaking paper under the table and trying to draw under the table and stuff. So I thought finger puppets were like the easiest thing. It would take 20 minutes each finger puppet. And so <laughs> I could actually sit there and stitch across and make the little, you know, faces out of the animals and then be done with it. And it was just this very obsessive, addicting, gratifying feeling to finish a finger puppet because I think ultimately my writing wasn't getting anywhere. So just having these little bits of things in my hands where I could finish them, I think helped me um, to sort of while away all of that writer's block. Well, and when you were making the finger puppets, did you think that it would be a thing you would sell? Yeah, I went through so many transgressions and thought so many different ways that I could take these animals and I drew them into like boxes. I actually wrapped boxes and put the puppets on top of the boxes and thought that would make a great kids product at a baby store. I illustrated them into a children's book and I just took them into all these different ways in which I thought a product could be built from. And each time it just wasn't feeling right. And it wasn't until I really started to draw them into paper collections, into stationery, that it felt right. And that took about, I would say, like two years of writer's block and two years worth of sitting there with finger puppets. <laughs> trying to figure out what we were going to do with them. Wow. Yeah. And then why, I asked this for a very kind of selfish reason, because my mother listens to this podcast, and I have for years drawn a cartoon pig and a cartoon sheep that, of course, her as my mother absolutely adore because I've been drawing them since I was a little kid. 
And every single time she sees them, she says, these should be part of a stationary collection. <laughs> <laughs> and I've always thought, yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, you know. Maybe they should. Yeah, but all the while going, it can't be that easy to just go, well, I know how to draw a cartoon pig and a cartoon sheep, and that's and they should end up on stationary. Somebody should just want them on the stationary. <laughs> it's so complicated, isn't it, to break into such an industry? Um, it's it's daunting. Um, I must say, though, that my industry is, is a very kind industry, I think, in comparison to others in, in the design world. Um, I've, I've met a lot of friends and, and a lot of colleagues that really want to help each other out. But it, it is very daunting because it is an aspect of a business where you're going to have to wholesale. And for me, that's so foreign. I mean, retail, even anything was just completely new to me. And actually taking that product and building it into something that you're going to have to sell to stores and deliver and figure out the shipping and the invoicing and all of the little bits and pieces that go along with a business, that absolutely had to take like another part you know, of my brain to actually start going at the same time before I felt ready to debut the collection. You know, I must say also that I really had to feel like I w it was in a place of authenticity because when I went, I didn't even know how to draw. I didn't even have, know how to do a program on the computer graphically if I wanted to do like a herringbone pattern. I had to hand draw everything. So when I went, I felt so insecure amongst these people who had companies and we're doing amazing products and I, I saw them in all the stores and the bookshops. And so anthropology though appreciated this kind of wobbly line, this hand-drawn line that I had. And so I always look back and think, you know, it's really sometimes what your original voice might be that stands out and helps to, to make that mark for you that first time. So I kind of went naive, but I also went with sort of this naive confidence that I really believed in the drawings and had, you know, done them so many times that I was very sure that this was really what I could put out and really anything else different was going to be not authentic for me. So in those years when the recession hits and you start to feel an artistic decline, where does that come from? The business starting to wobble or getting tired of drawing the same characters? What was happening? Yeah, I could feel it on many sides. By then, I had moved the business into a studio um, in San Francisco on Polk Street, this Russian Hill neighborhood, um, which has remained very independent. And it was thriving. There, the boutique uh, was doing so well, and, and everyone on the block was doing so well. And then, you know, through a series of like recession, and, and even I was watching other retailers suffer, I was like, wow, something is changing, not only in the economy, but also in terms of independent retail, stationary shops, and then even in design. And so I could feel it that, you know, I needed to change up my collection. And I was feeling in a creative rut with the style and aesthetic that I was working in. I was doing weddings, and I was doing really like happy, girly, feminine designs that were pastel. And I thought, you know what, I kind of want to do something a little edgier. And so at that time, I thought, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to add a few designs and a few categories to my existing collection. And when I started doing that, I also started to feel that inauthentic feeling and that something wasn't right. And mm -hmm. I just thought, I have to stop. And I can't really do this. I don't really believe in adding a few categories that are edgy and changing the look of my existing brand. So I decided I needed to just stop everything and just stop cold turkey and 
go somewhere where I had always dreamt of going and just visit and just breathe it for a time being and not worry about anything else. And that's when I decided to go to Paris. Yeah. So when you went to Paris, was your intention to just take a long, non-working, sit around, do whatever you want break? Yes. Yes. And I'm so glad I, I did that because there were no expectations to start a business, no expectations to try to change things up or or how was I going to make money with the next idea or venture? There was nothing really tied to that. It was just really to clear my mind and to really enjoy the city and, you know, geek out over it. So I spent a lot of time just preparing spreadsheets and being really nerdy and like <laughs> getting dessert apps that would buzz if I missed a location. You know, I just decided to get all, all like crazy over it. But it, it was in a way that wasn't going to generate like my next business at all. How long were you planning to go? So this was a very brief, I would say, you know, when people go on trips, sometimes when I hear they can go for like a month or more, this was basically under two weeks. And I just planned every little day packed with all the patisseries and cafes and the monuments, everything that I wanted to see, I packed it in, into sort of this little map that I had, just thought I was just going to eat and sleep and just walk through Paris and just visit all the art that I could possibly visit. Why Paris? It's kind of funny. I always got teased for being in the creative field and never having gone to Paris. <laughs> and so I was 40 and everyone was just always like laughing at me going, Catherine, you're just ridiculous. You know, how could you have not gone to Paris by now? And they'd have all these stories and, you know, macarons and all those things that they were eating. I was just was like, this is impossible. If I don't go, I'm going to be shamed for the rest of my life. <laughs> so I was like, I'm going to have to put Paris immediately on the map. And I had never been to Europe, actually. And so I thought this would be a great first start. Yeah. In your emails, too, you kept saying, I didn't I didn't go to Europe till late in life, till late in life. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> <Come> <laughs> Neither did I. I mean, I think that that is a story that you and I share yeah, that I didn't yeah. go until I, well, not quite 40, but mid 30s was the first time I had gone to Europe. Yeah, I think it does. It's, it's a there's something different about going late in life. I don't know. What do you think's different about it? You know, for me, I think that there was a certain kind of like if I had gone in my youth, there was a hunger. I went to Asia, you know, and I, I was writing and everything. And I remember that kind of hunger and need for connection into what I was doing and what was coming next. And going later to Paris without any expectation, I had, I thought, you know, I had encountered a lot, met a lot of people just by being in San Francisco and having so many amazing people come into town and into our studio. And I really thought, I got a sense of sort of colors and even architecture and the way things sound. Even just walking down the street, I felt like I had made sense of my life and how things work. But then when I went there, it just blew my mind. And in it happening late in life, I think it just innervated this um, new sense of creative juice for me. And going there, I remember the first thing I noticed when I like got up, up like woke up from the taxi I could just see the closeness of the buildings and the architecture. And then when I rolled down the window, I could hear the sounds were slightly different. Um, and that just blew my mind away. And it just kind of reminded me that, you know, of looking for something new and, and things were always out there that, to experience. It just awakened me in a way. 
think I was probably pretty dead by then (laughs) with my creative rut. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like you realize that there is a wider world out there in some ways. Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, and you also mentioned when we were talking earlier that this also was a period of challenge when it came to how you viewed relationships. Yes, yes, absolutely. I think that by the time that I had hit Paris and I, I was actually then going to Paris multiple times now, like, you know, at least once a year. And my collection sort of blossomed out of the first trip because when I came back, I obsessively drew and um, within three weeks I had like 52 images that I was looking at that looked nothing like what I was doing. They were dark blue, black. The subject matter was completely different. And I realized I had to rebrand right then, probably like a month or two after returning from Paris. And so after that, The brand then became debuted as Ferma Papier, and it changed everything. And then I must say, I was kind of strumming along with this new brand until I realized, like, in my relationship, there had been a huge sort of um, kind of like a crisis going on in terms of our financials, our relationship where it stood, and I didn't know what to do with that. And so I found myself roaming the hills of San Francisco for miles and miles. I I just remember going like roaming night and day, night and day. And then I remember my agent had been talking to me about possibly doing a book on Paris since this was the body of work that I was doing for my brand. And I had always pushed her away and I was like, I can't see it. I don't really know. But then through the, the crisis of what was happening in my relationship and sort of this need to sort of like, you know, search and walking around in San Francisco, like for miles, Suddenly it came to me that I needed to sort of do this book for what I really loved and what I believed in and what I felt was the absolute truth of what my passion was. And that's when I could see the book as, you know, a telling of of it through art. And I was able to pitch the book and go back to my agent and say, I'm ready. And so it was through this crisis that I was having in my relationship that it pushed me, as in also the, the creative rut that I had that kind of pushed me to go to Paris in the first place. But each crisis kind of helped me to kind of take a risk. And then this is how the Paris book came about. Would you say that the Paris trip, or at least the artistic awakening that you had there, caused the crisis in some way, relationally? You mean going to Paris? Yeah. I mean, well, one of the things we've talked about on the show before is uh, we've done a couple episodes about how couples often change I mean sometimes in living overseas but also in travel that they change to a point where they just can't make it work anymore Mm. and that's just sort of a sad offshoot of the awakenings you sometimes have by living in a different culture or by discovering something about yourself basically you know it's interesting for me it wasn't like estrangement of or distance that was causing any issues I'd say that Paris never factored in to what was happening in my relationship. It, the problems that were happening in there were far, you know, entrenched in history. And it was my own, my own shunting of my voice, I feel, like in my history as a woman, that I wasn't able to speak or even feel what was really happening. And I think actually what Paris did and this rebranding of my business I think what happened was that it emboldened me to search and to never stop until I felt like there was some authenticity behind anything that I was doing. So in, in fact, in some ways, I think traveling and going abroad 
it gave me an ability to sort of look at the bigger picture, step back and see things, and then really take an extra step or a risk to fight for kind of what I believed in. And so it became easier to fight for my art. It became a lot easier to even voice for myself in many ways that I never did before. You got a clearer picture, you would say, maybe of what you wanted out of life and then were able to speak up about it. Yes. <laughs> so, so would say. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so you break up the book into four sections, which are color, pattern, perspective, and rhythm. Just to give sort of a snapshot, since I've seen the book and many of the people listening haven't seen it yet, although I will put a link to where they can find it in the show notes. But can you give a moment of each one of those sections, something you remember or what you were trying to convey in those four distinctive sections of the book? Yes. So the opening chapter, chapter one, is color. I'm super color sensitive, and that's what changed the most, I would say. The first thing was it went from pastel and my girly little drawings to now it was deep and navy and moody. Um, I wanted to do a color study of Paris, and I found that in the first chapter, I did a lot of edibles, the sweets, the Bertillon, the ice, the, the glacé and ice creams, creating like a p color palette, to the jellies at Jacques Jemin, all the warm passion fruit, all these wonderful jellies, created like a good study for warm color palette tones. And then chapter two was, um, <clears throat> it goes through color and then pattern. And pattern is like everything there. It's gorgeous. The floor tiles, all the details that you see, even the flower markets or the outside markets. So I turned a lot of like what you see walking around, looking around into patterns. That also included the botanical gardens where I just spent days roaming around and drawing all the, all the beautiful exotic foliage in the, in the hothouses. I created like patterns from those as well. All four chapters really were taking from the life of Paris. And so the third one, of course, is perspective, which was probably one of the, the more naturally easy ways for me to interpret Paris because of the Eiffel and the, the, the Seine and all the amazing uh, juxtapositions of the city. But my favorite chapter was rhythm. It wasn't just rhythm of the line in art, which is really important, but it's also the rhythm of the city. So there was like a favorite uh, General Comtois, which is like this um, watering hole, Afro uh, museum slash cafe slash dance hall. And so I, I kind of portrayed the life of that in the day and night people dancing or people playing instruments or people lounging around. But that chapter, that last chapter, I also did like the city dogs of Paris. And then Bastille Day is a day mm -hmm. when the firehouses shut down. You can dance free at the firehouses. And so everybody kind of cues around to all of the, the little houses, firehouses, and you get to dance with the firemen. Yeah. So it was like, that was really fun to illustrate. So, um, that ended sort of the fourth chapter, which was sort of about the life of the city and the, and the rhythm of the city. How do you hope that people use this book or enjoy this book? You know, for me, it was a very boheme journey, just painting what I, I absolutely loved and what was special to me as an artist. So, you know, there was a special lens in which I think I was intaking Paris and how it inspired me. And so I just hope that people can read it, um, enjoy for themselves, and maybe sort of pick up on some of these um, eccentric sort of ways in which I was seeing the city and some of the familiar ways as well. But maybe hopefully it 
you know, can harken back to the way in which you might walk through a city or you might walk through and, and enjoy the way that you look at things and figuring out what it is that speaks to that. Yeah, I do think that the book has that sort of feeling of capturing things as you see them as you go. Mental snapshots almost. Like I could almost picture you sitting there drawing it in the cafe while drawing these women who are sitting across from you as you're sitting there. Yes, it was very much like that. I was definitely um, an enchanted observer watching these beautiful like uh, Parisian women. You know, they don't they don't like to do their hair, but they have these beautiful colors of lipstick and they're sitting there sipping their tea. And I'm just like, just looking at this going, this is amazing. And that just re- it was something that was like a visual delight for me. And so it was really easy for me to translate on, onto paper. Would you say that you're dreamy in the world? <laughs> you have to go about with this sort of artistic dreaminess? I am. How so? I'm very dreamy. I, <clears throat> I like to sort of daydream, but night, I would call it night dream, I would say, because I do all of my designs and my creative work between the hours of like midnight and maybe like 4 a.m. Wow. Because I feel like that's when the world's asleep and I don't have anybody tugging on me. Nobody's emailing me. My son's asleep. Everybody's good. I mean, I feel like I can really relax and, and it comes out then. And so I definitely do spend, I think, if you ask me, like in a 24-hour cycle, there is a big portion that I need where I'm just kind of roaming, you know, whether it's exploring through a pen or, or through my mind. Yeah. You rebrand your business. What did it go from? What was it originally and what did it go to after this first trip? So my original business was under my name, Kat Cito, and I had a card line, but I also had a wedding album line. So if you're a bride getting to, uh, about to get married, you might go into a shop and uh, you might choose your wedding invitations and you might see an album that has my name on it and you may choose wedding invitations, which we then would field from retailers and we would produce those wedding invitations for the bride. You know, it was a big wedding business that I was doing. And then cards that were very floral and very feminine um, as accompanying like products. So that, all of a sudden, the rebranding of it, it went from that line to Ferma Papier, which was very hipster, Parisian-inspired. It went dark, navy, navies are black. The subject matter was completely different. We no longer do custom, and it's all cards and products, like journals and and planners. So it, it really changed up for me in everything in terms of style. So one other thing that you said in one of your emails, and these we've been chatting about doing this for I don't even know how long, so I'm probably quoting all this back to you, and, you're, and you think, what? What did I say? <laughs> when did I say this? But one of the other things that you said that I thought was such an interesting thought was that art and life have always been the yin and yang for you. Yes. What do you mean by that? So I think for me, I mean, art for me is like this dreamy state and and exactly what you mentioned about in my dreamy. Mm -hmm. And art has always been an escape for me. And it's also been um, salvation for me as well. I feel like it saved my life in many places and points. I feel like art and life, it, it has taught me so much, the good and the bad. I feel like art has always been there to save me, inspire me, to push me, to scare me, just as life is as well. And it just has this interplay in what I do and sort of the journey of my life. And I just, I feel like that's a a big experience, I feel, in talking to a lot of other creative folks that they feel this way as well. And so I just feel very fortunate that I'm able to do that. Yeah. 
Kat Sito is a San Francisco-based artist, author, and shop owner. I'm going to put links to her product line and to her book in the show notes. The book is called Impressions of Paris, an artist sketchbook. Thank you so much for doing this and talking to me finally after all this time. Oh, thank you so much, Katie. It was wonderful. Thank you. And this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Thanks for all the ways you support us. Give us a good rating on iTunes, maybe five stars if you like the show. It will help other people discover that we exist. Thank you. You're the best. <laughs>